Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Itai Hertz, co-founder and CEO of Loris.ai. In this episode, we talked about why Itai decided to double down on support and build Loris.ai, how it works, and how their customers use it to reduce churn. We then dove into Etsy's experience building his previous company, Payment Revolution, how they prevented churn at the very beginning, and how they made sure to stay top of mind with their customers. Itai then shared how they dealt with the customer transition between Payment Revolution and Shopkeep when they got acquired. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael. And here's today's episode. Hey, Itai, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. For the listeners, Itai is the CEO and founder of Loris.ai, providing real-time coaching technology for customer support agents, allowing your teams to increase productivity, efficiency, and the quality of their chat-based conversations. Prior to uh, founding Loris, Itai started out his career in legal and in finance, private equity. He then went on to found the Payment Revolution, where he served as the CEO until it was acquired by Shopkeep. Uh, he then went on to serve as the CRO for Shopkeep that was later acquired by Lightspeed uh, POS in 2020. So my first question for you, Itai, is what drove you to start Loris? Uh, coming from a background in legal, finance, and private equity to payments provider, you've now decided to double down on supports. Why is that? So um, thanks for having me again and for the opening question. So Loris actually started out of uh, a nonprofit in, uh, in New York City called Crisis Text Line, which is the uh, largest crisis hotline in the world, all SMS-based, um, that's 24-7 free, very uh, successful nonprofit doing amazing work um, in the U.S. and now abroad. And actually the, the idea for Loris came uh, when, when private companies started reaching out to Crisis Text Line saying essentially we're moving heavily from phone-based conversations into digital chat, SMS, email, and messaging. You all are the best in the world at calming people down in written form. Maybe you could teach us how to do that. So the original um, concept was actually to build training videos, empathetic training videos for large enterprise clients. And then through training with some big brands, um, folks essentially said, listen, you have this huge database and data scientists. Maybe you could do this live in real time and sit on our customer service platforms because then everybody would need that. So that was kind of uh, how Loris was born. Um, so I actually joined when, when that um, decision was made to make this live uh, with data science and machine learning and live on top of customer service platforms. So yeah. that's been a couple of years ago, yeah. 
Very nice. It's, it's obviously interesting always where like when products come out of other pain points that others are facing and reaching out, definitely like it's the best place I think to start is when customers are asking you for the product. Absolutely. Uh, very cool. Uh, and then we, we spoke a little bit about your background, but maybe let's like backtrack quite a bit and then we can come back to Loris uh, at the end. But uh, you started out in legal and then made the switch. Like, what was the motivation? Like, how did you end up like from a lawyer to becoming like a software uh, company founder? So I, I went to law school. I think I was debating whether to go into finance or go into law school. It was probably a coin toss, but I went into, uh, into law, into a big law in New York at a big firm. And within uh, days, I think I started thinking I should probably figure out a way to get into business at some point. So what happens is very early on at a big firm, you get exposed to big companies, big deals. Um, and then as I was advising startups and VC clients, I ran into a lot of folks that weren't that much older than me that were building really interesting companies. So I started to try to figure out how, you know, what kind of ideas I had and is there anything that I could create uh, to start my own business. I had a few companies on the side that, that I dabbled in while I was uh, at my firm. And um, it took me several years to figure out a way out of big law, but the, the seeds were there really early. I think. Yeah. And did you ever not come up with the idea of like getting rid of lawyers altogether? Because I think that's definitely one. I thought a lot about that. And there are a lot of teams trying to automate a lot of the mundane tasks that lawyers do. Yeah. But for better or worse, um, lawyers are not going away anytime soon. They're not going away. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's such a weird thing for me that it hasn't been done by now, because I think like, there's laws, you have a book like to follow and it's rules. And essentially that's what's like a computer program is a group of like uh, rules that you follow. Uh, I found it still strange that nobody's really cracked this, even if it's just for one like specific use case uh, and like focusing like, for example, like startup um, financing, like I'm surely by now we should be able to crack this and like a few terms, few inputs. And then um, I've just gone through the pain point myself now as well of going backwards and forwards for a couple of months. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's, there's the certain things that folks real. are trying. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. I mean, safe notes, and there, there are different things that folks are trying to standardize to make it easy on, on startups. Yeah. But uh, complexity can generate a lot of money for people. So for that reason, card, net, yeah. card payment networks and lawyers are not going away. Exactly. So um, you then you made the leap. You started your own company. Uh, what was that company? It was Payment Revolution. What were you doing? Like. So um, actually, I left my firm to start an investment company in the recession. That was actually before Payment Revolution. And right. uh, so we did a bunch of deals, mostly distressed. And then the recession happened, which kind of flipped all of our plans upside down. Um, and out of that, um, you know, in that time, I don't know if you remember that time, but basically everyone I knew was losing everything that they had. And there wasn't a concept of, uh, of fintech, really. But um, I had a friend who, from undergrad who was in the payments business and explained it to me. And it was really interesting. And it seemed like small businesses really had a tough time getting a leg up and, and kind of competing with bigger companies. Um, so our, our essentially our concept was if we could provide them with interesting solutions and get them to be competitive with what other bigger companies would have available to them, maybe it would take us five or 10 years, but over time we could create an interesting business. Um, so we kind of took the leap 2009 and started Payment Revolution at that time set from scratch. So um, I went from you know, like a big firm with a beautiful um, view overlooking all of Manhattan to, you know, I'm in a gas station at seven in the morning trying to explain to people why this payments network is really interesting. Yeah. Uh, funnily enough, you're not actually the first lawyer that we, I've had on the show that's done something similar as well. Like 
Um, I think it was actually Nick Fogel, if I'm, I might be getting this wrong, but I recently joined the show and um, he essentially went from being a lawyer to he went to becoming a taxi driver so he could learn to code in his spare time. Like he took a job as a taxi driver from a lawyer and was actually coding like in his spare time while he was doing like down hours. It was quite interesting hearing yeah. the story. Um, but yeah, so... Talk us through that experience a little bit as well, like in the context as well, churn and retention potentially. You started dealing with the business for SMBs predominantly. Um, typically, it's a, it's a tough space when it comes to churn and retention because there's just so many reasons outside of your control uh, that can lead to churn. Um, so what was your experience like building that company, especially back at that time when uh, these concepts were still relatively unknown and um, you needed to fight an uphill battle in a lot of different areas? Yeah. So at first it was really almost like going door to door, starting from zero and trying to build up a customer base because you know you want to get referrals and you want to build a network, but at the beginning, it's like a snowball. It's very hard to get started. So it was a lot of face-to-face meetings, personal relationships, people, you know, every single client, essentially I knew them. Um, so I could, I could be walking down Manhattan, uh, down sixth Avenue and I see someone out of Delhi say, Oh, Hey, it's, it's, come, come over here. Something's wrong with the, with our technology, can you come in here? That would happen to me on a weekly basis. I would actually like walk into places in the middle of the city. So um, it was really exciting and difficult to get started. And then once you you try so hard to get your initial client base going, if someone were to churn, it was like someone stealing a child from you. I mean, it was so painful. So we were very uh, cognizant of, of limiting churn and trying to just grow our base. <clears throat> so we did all kinds of things to stay top of mind with our customers. We'd send them analysis. We'd send them updates. We'd, we'd stay kind of top of mind. What's interesting in the payments business, at least at that time, there was this philosophy that you just sign someone up and you never talk to them again. Because if you talk to them, they want to negotiate with you. They want to say their bank is offering something similar. There's all these other things. So uh, we actually decided to do the opposite, be very hands-on. So we were very, you know, our revenue retention was, you know, I can't even remember, but 140% a year or something like it was, it was, it was insane. And so we did that. And then we actually started partnering with um, point of sale dealers who are, going into different cities and selling payments technology, point of sale technology. So then our relationship was essentially not only with them, but their their customers. So that relationship was even more important. You can't lose that customer because you would upset that dealer as well. So the stakes just kept getting higher and higher. And then in 2011, I actually met the founder of the first iPad-based point of sale system, which was Shopkeep. And I said, you know, I think we can power payments for you in a really um, important way and, and really do something special for your client base. And overnight, they started sending us just a ton of deals. So we worked with them, we worked with a lot of companies that sold iPad-based point-of-sale systems at the time. And, um, and churn was everything for us. You know, if we didn't grow, that was one thing, but to lose customers was like unacceptable. That's all. Yeah. I found it interesting what you said previously as well, like staying top of mind, because I think this is something that's overlooked for a lot of businesses. And uh, especially when we think about like what's required to create a habit uh, out of your product and your usage and like you never want to be forgotten. So I think obviously within payments, it's it's quite different in the sense that like it's something that works behind the scenes and just set it and forget it type of thing. Um, but then that also leaves you, like you say, vulnerable to um, them making the switch because they don't ever remember speaking to you in the beginning. There's no relationship that's been built there. What led you to this insight as well? Like what drove you to say, okay, let's do this differently. Let's like make sure we stay top of mind, giving updates, giving analytics. It's a great question. I'm, I was thinking about this recently. What, what made us start? I think that I had some customers say to me, when you signed me up, you promised X, Y, and Z. 
Um, I don't know if you did it. So I said, okay, every month I'll, I'll send you an update. You know, we told you X would be this, Y would be this, Z would be that. And we started doing that, not just for the existing, but for new clients. And then someone said, no one's ever done this before. Like usually I sign up for a service and then I never hear from them. This is incredible. So that's kind of something that we tried to start to instill with folks. Um, we thought that was kind of a differentiator in, in the space. And, uh, and then also if something goes wrong or they're not happy with us, at least maybe they would tell us. Yeah. There's a risk of churning. The issue of payments is kind of unique. If your customer leaves, you only know after they left. So, right, if, you're, if someone's with you and then suddenly they're going, like, oh, they went to Square, but I wish they would have told me. <laughs> Maybe exactly. we could have done something. You know? It's interesting as well because I think, like, there are businesses where the use case is not every day, where you want to stay top of mind. So I think, like, we talked about this on the show a little bit before as well, was like a company like Zillow, for example, where you go to them to buy a house, but you don't buy a house every day. Um, and this example, I think actually it's from, uh, I first heard it at Reforge. It's really great material on churn and retention. Like uh, there's courses now um, headed up by Brian Balfour. I think Andrew Chen was one of the original writers as well and Sean Klaus. Um, but uh, Casey went as well. But the, the essentially what they realized at Zillow was that Yes, okay, it's one thing like uh, having and using our service, but then we really want to stay top of mind. So the next time they want to come around and like buy a house or use a service that um, they remember us and they, we're the ones to come to. So similarly, like next time, maybe your customer has another payment uh, um, issue that they need to solve or solution that they're looking for, their immediate response should be to come to you as opposed to uh, looking and seeking for other solutions. And what they ended up doing, which is really, really interesting, was they put together a Zillow estimate or something it's called like a Zillow estimator where mm. they give you an estimate of what your house is worth. So they said, okay, you're going to buy the house from us, but um, what's the other thing that's going to be related to your house? You're going to want to check the valuation of your house. Is it going up? Is it going down? Is it worth well? And that was sort of like an excuse to stay in contact with their customers to give them those updates. Like you say, like, this is what we're doing for you. Like you've bought this house in this area. The value's gone up, it's gone down. Uh, and then that really sort of keeps you fresh in people's minds. It can actually help you create that habit that you need uh, for retention. So, Absolutely. Especially especially when something's commoditized. Everything ultimately becomes commoditized. But in a business like payments is commoditized. Zillow now, you could argue, competing yeah. with a lot of folks in the same space, keeping your brand top of mind is, is huge. Uh, and then you went on then, so you mentioned you started building this relationship uh, with Shopkeep and uh they were building sort of POS for iPad. How did the eventual sort of acquisition come about? And obviously they were sending you a ton of questions, a ton of customers, like you built a really good relationship. Like what was that period like? And then maybe talk us through like how you transitioned your customer base into theirs without losing customers or at least mm. tried not to. So we worked with them and, and a bunch of other companies like them. iPad based point of sale systems were, a big deal back then when the iPad had come out, you realized you could run a business, a restaurant, a retail store um, with that. So we realized that that was kind of the future. That was our bet. So we worked with them and a few of their competitors, but then we got very close with them. We had some shared office space in New York. We also had a, an office in Chicago and we started, you know, we were there a lot. We trained a lot of their sales folks on how to talk about the industry, about payments, about the integration of point of sale, about a bunch of other things. So we were, we were very, very intertwined and how the sale ultimately happened you know we talked about it for a while and we were kind of opposed to it we wanted to stay autonomous and then we realized the market was getting big and people were going to consolidate and it'd be pretty hard to go alone and do what they were doing um we had a great relationship with them it was it ended up being in hindsight you know it's what six years ago it was the deal was great it made sense for everybody um 
we were able to really like help their payments business explode. And so we had, we had a lot of customers that were shared. So that was obviously easy. And then on the new ones, uh, we kind of maintain the same sort of like white glove service. We had the customer care team at ShopKeep, you know, to know the, the most important clients and, and kind of ensure that that relationship continued. And it was seamless. And still to this day, there's yeah. thousands and thousands of customers that are still, you know, on, on that platform. So, yeah. And interesting, I think obviously it makes your life a lot easier when you have a lot of shared customer base as well, so that the transition then becomes just a little bit natural for the customer. They can say, okay, I'm using both services already. They just became one now. It's, it's a little bit different, I think, from the perspective of it's like you were with us, now you're with this company and you need to get into line with their rules and regulations and how they work. So That's um, very tough, especially when you know the smaller company gets bought by a bigger company. Oftentimes the bigger company is worried about other things. Maybe trend is not that important. They care more about growth right now. Exactly. And then you say, no, 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 these folks have been with us for years. We have to take care of them. Um, so they were yeah. very good about that. Yeah. And that really helped keep, That's cool. keep trend low. Yeah. Yeah. Because like you say, typically there might be sort of this doesn't fit in with our strategy. This is not our ideal customer profile. Like we're going to drop all of these customers and you end up, like exactly. you said, like was your baby in the beginning? You felt everyone you've lost and then you lose all of them at once. Exactly. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Bad spot. Cool. So um obviously then like you spent some time there uh you went on to become the chief revenue officer uh shopkeep like in the context of that so you were leading the sales team um themselves when it came to churn and retention how much did like retention play into the initial sale and how were you aligning sort of your um sales teams like goals with the company's long-term uh vision and long-term growth so I would say that the, the main way that we attacked it was, was mainly a sales and marketing joint effort. So what was happening in the space, I used to say that there was not a, you know, there's no one else in that ecosystem you'd rather be than the point of sale company because when a small business opens, they basically call you saying, I'm going to open in three days. I need technology now. So you're, you're kind of their first phone call aside from their lease, but then they really need you. So you can really help them get software. You can help them get payments, maybe a, a loan. There's a bunch of other things, loyalty, gift cards, et cetera. And we tried to be very consultative in what we did. And we started creating packages to make it really sticky. Because what happens is if you're, so, you know, if you know that this customer ultimately will need a basket of eight things, and you only sell them three, there's five chances someone else is going to take that customer from you somehow. So the stickier that you can make it, the better. Um, they trust you more also, but then, then it's just there. It's so easy for them. It's so frictionless for them to stay with you that you'll you'll ultimately see churn go down dramatically. Um, and also a big part of that is pricing. So we spent a very, very long time thinking about pricing. Originally, shopkeeping, almost all the point of sale systems were month to month. Um, yeah. And then some transition to Square was just charging you by transaction, which was actually kind of expensive. And no one had started bundling these things into longer term contracts. So we started doing that. And that was really, really helpful for churn. So that was, you're solving churn on the front end. Yeah. Uh, and interesting as well, like you said, looked at pricing. Was that sales specifically looking at pricing? The company as a whole, like who would lead a project like this uh, in this case? So the, uh, we had an amazing CMO um, and uh, we had a, a great CMO and a great FP&A team. Um, so basically we combined, awesome. we, we melded our minds together to, to kind of test a few things, see if they worked, put them out in the market. And uh, it was it was a big driver for us, yeah. Yeah. So essentially like as a sales team though, you really realize like combining the services. So like making it more sticky, servicing them in multiple different ways. Uh, that's almost in some cases sort of like a, 
onboarding customer success experience where you're trying to get them engaged with your product as much as possible, but you are front loading that from the sales perspective with really like putting together pricing and packaging exactly. to enable them to take all the different features. Very cool. Uh, and then fast forward to today. Um, so loris.ai, um, obviously we you chatted briefly about in the beginning. You can now take technology that sits on top of other like help desks and software and can help your support team solve difficult conversations. So uh, I think obviously in the context of churn and retention, this sounds like a dream uh, and to be able to service your customers better. Talk us a little bit better how it actually works and how you see customers of yours successfully using it to reduce churn. So what's happening today in the, in the customer service space is, you know, we thought something like this would take years to happen and COVID has really exacerbated some of the trends that we had seen. So folks are moving heavily from phone-based into digital. I consider digital chat, SMS, uh, messaging, and email. And what happens when you move into digital is everyone gets excited, uh, except for, you know, on, a, on the phone call, you can only talk to one person at a time. In digital, theoretically, you can juggle maybe two, maybe three, maybe more folks at a time. The problem is, as folks are, brands are growing really quickly and they're outsourcing a lot of this, you know, offshore, they experience all kinds of issues. So they're pushing agents to handle a lot of conversations at the same time. And also agents are typically worldwide. So someone in Asia might not empathize the same way as someone in South America. Then they're handling X number of tickets at the same time of people who are, some are upset, some are fine, some are happy. And juggling that cognitively, bouncing between tickets is super difficult. So actually explaining, um, you know, that someone is upset and here's the way you should respond and here's suggested techniques and here's suggested language can really improve the conversations immediately, make those conversations much easier, much faster to take. So we see boosts in, in CSET and NPS, and we also improve efficiency dramatically. The most, the most interesting thing, honestly, is the, the agent uh, reactions are and the NPS scores that we get from agents are through the roof. They're really thankful because it's a, it's a tough job. And, um, Another thing that's happening in digital channels is folks are putting in chatbots and they're putting in self-service tools. So a lot of the easy stuff's going away. So the agent that used to deal with some easy conversations and some difficult ones is now inundated with difficult. So that job is really, really hard. Um, so any any help that they get, you know, they're really appreciative. And we're, yeah. we're happy to do that. I, as well, I think it's something that in companies, you don't empathize with very well, like within support, like... Uh, now that you've said it as well to me, it's like literally in support, you're spending all day just dealing with shitty conversations and like <laughs> right. uh, upset people and trying to solve uh, problems. Obviously, there's the nice cases that you hear about internally where we solved a, a case and the customer's super excited and you see the nice smiley faces and emoji, but we don't probably see all the uh, underlying like really, really bad conversations that happen and like the abuse that you must get as well in support. Uh, so oh, totally. And it's all day, right? It's all day. It's thinking about a shift that's, you know, six, eight, 10 hours where, where everyone's upset at you. It's hard to understand how upset they are. It's hard to, it's hard to put yourself in their shoes. And that's kind of the job of the agent, right? So that's, it's a really, really difficult job. Yeah. And, and it's so easy on the other end as well, not to get frustrated. Like I, for me as well, I got super upset with myself a couple of weeks ago where I was on a call with a support agent trying to solve an issue that had been going. It was like a critical moment for me. Like I was internalizing, like I had a lot of stress that day. And I actually like got really upset with the agent. And then as soon as I got upset with him, uh, I was like, dude, I'm really, really sorry. Like, this is not cool. Like, uh, it's me. I'm stressed. Like, I'm in a bad mood today. This is not to do with you. This is, and like, I immediately backtracked. But afterwards, like, I was just thinking as well to myself, like, that was 
a really dick move as well on the court. <laughs> uh, but it it happens like so easily. Like people can get upset, and uh, like I've I've seen many people get upset with support calls, like uh, just hearing, or even at restaurants and things like this. And um, yeah, just building something that can help them in those situations to sort of understand and empathize. And you mentioned like a couple of other things that were interesting. It's like different countries react in different ways. They empathize in different uh, like places. So the tone, the, the way you respond can be completely different from country to country as well. Exactly. Um, nice. And then, so your, uh, the product itself then, obviously one, it's like creating better experiences for the customers. Uh, they're solving like, where do you see this then going next? Like what other use cases could this, the same scenario be applied to? Is there something that's in the plans for Loris? Yeah, so what's what's happening is as the easier conversations go away and get automated, then the human's job, the judgment is more important. So those those are just going to keep getting more difficult. Now, theoretically, you know, you could say if I'm going to have this conversation as a brand, I want to make this um, as positive as possible. So there's a lot of places this can go within this world, which is some companies want to upsell with their care team. They want a hybrid team. You know, we like to say that because you sign up today for so many products and services just by downloading an app that the only time that customers and brands really interact is through customer service. So people are realizing that that is a really important pipe, right? That, that conversation flow is really, really important. And that's really your chance to impact the brand and to make the customer happy. So number one, you want to make sure that they don't turn and they're not upset and it's not a horrible conversation. Flip side is maybe this can be a great conversation and the reason that they love you. So that's, that's certainly coming. Uh, we've had folks actually ask us about, you know, integrating Loris into their inner company conversations into Slack and things like that. Um, but this world is, is huge. Um, it, it's not going away. It's, it's growing at an incredible pace and more and more folks are moving into the synchronous, into the chat and messaging world. Yeah. So these conversations are becoming more and more important. So I think there's, there's plenty of, plenty of opportunity within this space. Absolutely. No, I think one of the interesting cases I read quite a few years back, and I've always loved the notion and the concept and actually seen it at play as well at Hotcha is um, the idea of support driven growth. And so often like people underutilize their support teams and they just sort of see it as like to solve problems. Uh, but like you said, like a lot of times, like the only communication you can have with your customers is that touch point with the uh, support staff. And that's an opportunity to sort of push them to maybe something interesting. I think it was HelpScout that first mentioned it. We actually uh, interviewed uh, the head of product. Uh, I think she's the CPO now, Mariah. Uh, and we we're discussing this topic as well in the sense that support-driven growth can be a thing and you can actually utilize your support team to actually push people to new features, to things they haven't used. So obviously done with tact. And I think that's where something like Loris can come in is that you can sort of gauge the sentiments, like have you able to solve the this problem for the customer? And then while you have them sort of push them to something new and interesting and saying like, I noticed in your accounts, you haven't tried this feature out. This could really help you with X, Y, or Z. And it's sort of a really big missed opportunity. Uh, how, totally. how are you handling this at Loris yourself? Um so we have, so we sit on top of platforms like Zendesk, Salesforce, LabPerson, Twilio, uh, and growing. And we have the things that we measure, urgency, sentiment, intent, and things like that. So, you know, we're, we're predicting kind of what the, what the responses should be, not just from an empathetic point of view, but from a solution point of view. We also give clients the ability to kind of work the flow, to edit the flow of different conversations themselves so they can have we call it touch points, but they can have points where they say, this is the intent, this is the submission reason, this is the, the topic. Things are going well. You might want to remind these folks, for example, that there's a subscription model available. Um, 
you know, uh, we spoke recently to a, a, pen, a huge pet insurance company. They basically said, you know, most, most families, uh, something like 50% of, of, of households who have one pet have a second pet. If a conversation is going well, you might want to mention that. Hey, did you know if you have an extra, if you have another pet, we have a special deal. So this is, you know, it's early days, but people are exploring all of those things. Um, and one other thing I'll just mention based on what you, what you just said was, um, you know, there's folks that look at the customer service conversation as a cost center or something. Maybe you want to just deflect and not have it. If you have it and it's good, not only can you create a great brand and upselling opportunities and loyalty, et cetera, but there's thing about all the information that you get in that conversation about what your actual customers think about you. It's not a sales conversation of a prospective person who's dealing with a lot of things. Someone's actually using your product or service. Do they like you? Uh, what do they think about you, about your competitors? Or do they have issues with your product? There's a tremendous amount of insights that you can get from that conversation that we surface for folks. That is super interesting. And then once you have that data, you don't want to live without it, right? Because it gives you a real leg up on, on the competition. Yeah, we also discussed this in a previous episode, um, the concept of like using uh, this customer support data that you have to be able to predict and understand churn. So more often than not, we look to churn exit surveys and we rely on those uh, to sort of understand where the problems or things happen, where you could probably predict a lot of these uh, things earlier on in the cycle, understand the problems better. Like you don't need to look at quantify your churn exit surveys to understand that you have a problem in your product. Like that's coming through your support desk and uh, being able to effectively take advantage of that is another great channel. Um, totally. So we, yeah, what we see is, yeah, mo most folks get surveys maybe eight, maybe 12% of the time through that or maybe manual service of QA. Yeah. We score hundred percent of messages. So if you're just scoring, you know, it's typically the surveys that you get is you get some, some great ones and some horrible ones. You don't really get the middle, the crux of most users and how they're using your product. So if you yeah. get insights into hundred percent of those conversations, think about all the things that you learn. And then you have a much better view. We say like, you know, 360 degree view of what's happening in your org. Absolutely. And you also then obviously have all the context of the customer, their history. So if you want to go back in and take a look, you've got it all there. Very exactly. cool. I see we're running up on time as well. So I want to make sure we save uh, for a couple of questions, ask every guest. Sure. Um, first question is, let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now. Uh, you join a new company, churn and retention is not doing great. And uh, the CEO comes to you and says, uh, like, we really need to turn things around, Itai. Like, uh, we have 90 days to make a dent in our retention numbers. I'm putting you in charge. You need to go and fix this. But... You're not going to tell me that you're going to go and speak to customers and understand the pain points and then figure out the biggest problem and solve that one. You're going to pick something that's worked for you in the past to reduce churn and you're going to run with that. What would you pick? Is there any other information that I have? Do I know what the, what the pricing looks like? Are people in, in commitments or not in commitments going to get access to that information? There's nothing like that. So, I mean, you can <laughs> you can make up the scenario, like pick something that's worked for you in the past that was able to reduce uh, churn relatively quickly because um, there's a limited amount of things you can do, I think, in my opinion as well. So, yeah. I mean, what the first thing that's top of mind is you want to look at some data, right? You want to look, if you can't speak to someone, at least look at some churn curves and see was churn great early on and then has it gotten worse? And if so, can you pinpoint why? And it's a really... You know this, right? It's a, you can get down a real long rabbit hole here because yeah. most people don't understand churn and where, where it comes from. So usually you'll see SaaS companies, for example, at the beginning churn is great because all their traffic is organic. Then they start buying. And then when they start paying for leads, they're getting folks that might not fit as well. So you can see a drop off there. That would kind of be 
my first, the first place that I would look is something happening in the marketing funnel that's bringing in a different kind of customer that might not be a great fit for this product. It's in, inevitably the answer is going to be yes in some respect, right? Unless you're doing, if it's all organic and it's dropping off, you have a huge problem. Maybe yeah. you don't have product market fit, but assuming that you're trying new marketing channels and trying to grow through PPC or affiliates or something, something else, you, you may have picked a, a channel that seems to be working for marketing, but it's really not working for, for the business because the churn is, is going up. Okay. So then I guess the next thing is, you know, can you do something about that? Is there some, something to, that you could offer folks that are in a similar boat that would make it sticky for them to stick around for you? So is there something that they thought your product did that it doesn't do that you could solve? Are they looking for a feature that you could build? Um, yeah. There's a reason men are disappointed. They expected something and they didn't. So that that problem is either a product problem. It could be a sales problem. Sales might be offering something that's um, the product's not doing. Yeah, it's, so, it's probably somewhere in those two departments. You're going to find you're going to begin to begin to find the answers. To do something about it within 90 days is pretty difficult, depending on how big the business is um, and how big the clients are. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I like how you sort of default to the top of the funnel and really like looking uh, that's where the, the issues lie. Essentially, I think to your point as well, like in the early days, churn can look really good. A lot of times this gets masked by growth as well because the, the faster you're growing, um, the less like churn is visible. But then slowly over time, you start to hit a growth ceiling and uh, then it really becomes apparent. And definitely, like you say, one of the things becomes channels, like having that channel fits and knowing that you're bringing in the right customers through the door. And obviously it's natural from like a salesperson to blame marketing. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but because I've also, we've had on the show that like sales teams just selling to the wrong leads as well. So like or overselling and then you don't have a good product uh, like That's sales. Uh, so yeah. yeah. Um, but definitely like there's huge impacts that can be made just early on in that funnel, understand like who you're bringing through the door, uh, what are their expectations? Does your product meet that? Is the sales team selling to those needs or are they overselling and, and really driving? Last question I'm interested in then is like, what's one thing that you know about churner retention today that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? Hmm. That's a great question. I think that I would say most people in my view, they don't either. They People think LTV means different things and LTV has everything in it, right? It has growth, it has churn. Um, I've, I've found that a lot of people, companies, investors, the market, they don't, they don't understand how to distinguish between the lifetime value of customers across different companies. How do you measure that? What's the time frame? What's the discount rate that you take on that? So a lot of companies look like they're amazing. Like you just said, uh, churn might look great because you're going to use a um, net revenue number or something. So you'll say, well, I lost a lot of I lost a lot of users, but the ones that stayed, they grew. So it's masking your churn in, in a certain respect. So there's a lot of inputs into, you know, into LTV that I think most folks don't quite get. Um, I wish I would have understood it very early on because it makes you value different opportunities, different companies, different spaces in a very different way. If you can really understand is are their clients really sticking around as long as you think that they're sticking around? Are they really growing at the rate that you're growing? Because when you mesh them together, you get these fake numbers that people talk about where you really don't understand whether their business is healthy or not. Yeah. So, uh, kind of a generic, I don't know, it's kind of a bigger answer, but. No, but I, I love this point as well, because I think it's like, this is actually one of the very big reasons why I never talk about specific numbers on the show or never really give benchmarks, because I think it's it's really subjective, uh, like what's a good churn rate, what's a good growth rate, it's like 
there's so many different variables that have this that will impact what's good in relation to your business. So uh, this is something I always stray away from talking on the show is like talking to benchmarks and numbers because I think it really depends like on so many different factors and like you just really need to become an expert on your business and understanding those levers that you need to pull uh, to build a healthy uh, business. But great point. Absolutely. Nice. Uh, so I see we, we up to the end of the show now. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Like anything they should be aware of that's coming out uh, from your side? How can they keep up to speed with your work? Itai? Uh, so you can find us uh, on uh, loris.ai, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter as well. Uh, I, I just think that the world is moving in a really uh, fast way. This is a really interesting topic to think about churn. I think that folks really need to keep it top of mind always. We're in a you know, especially interesting time for growth. So that's what most folks are talking about. Um, but churn is really how you keep your brand strong and how you keep your customers happy, how you get word of mouth to continue. So very interesting topic. I really enjoyed uh, the time today. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks very much. It's been great. Uh, my view on as well, like churn and retention is if you're building a subscription business and people are canceling your subscriptions, like you don't really have a business, you just have a leaky bucket. So uh, I think it's super, super important. Um, and yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, it was great learning from you and hearing your stories and experience. So best of luck now going forward with the company. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.